You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. And now, here is your host, Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Today I have a special guest for you. Uh, she's a Zen priest. She's an author of two special books on grief. The first is Bearing the Unbearable, Love, Loss, and the Heartbreaking Path of Grief. And her second book that came out in 2020 is Grieving is Loving. Dr. Joanne Cacciatore, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Uh, for the sake of context, where did you grow up? Um, well, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. I was born in Manhattan, but I was three when we left. So I don't sound like a New Yorker. Um, but my parents' family immigrated from uh, Sicily and came to New York City. And I, that's where I was born. So you're also a Zen priest. I am. Yes, I studied uh, Buddhism and continue to and practice. And that started in 2000, I want to say 10, mm. 2010, I believe. Yeah. So about 12 or 13, maybe 15 years. I don't know. Time. I work so many hours. Time is <laughs> like a blur. <laughs> so how did the calling to priesthood uh, begin for you? I mean, I think it probably started a long time before I knew what Zen was. I had an interest in meditation or contemplative practice for many years before I actually started formally practicing. Mindfulness before it sort of became a Western word. I I, I tried to practice mindfulness, but really intensely, I started to understand around the time of my daughter's death, how sitting with the painful feelings of loss, you know, which is what all contemplative practices from every religious background are about, sort of being with what is without needing to change it, learning to just stay. And that, and for me, I didn't associate it with any particular religious practice, mm -hmm. but I just had an innate sense that that this contemplative way, this contemplative path was going to be the only way for me through the trauma and grief of my daughter's death. Yeah. You know, I was going to ask you because I know that people come to, to do the work of grief, always come from uh, life experiences. Yeah. And how did that come about? Well, it was 1994 and I was pregnant with my daughter, my fourth child. Everything was fine and she was fine. And uh, she died while I was giving birth to her on her due date. And I was having natural childbirth, which as any of your listeners who have had natural childbirth know, the physical pain of natural childbirth is no picnic in the park by itself. Um, yeah. The only thing that makes it worth it is the reward that you get at the end. And it was silent when she was born. She died just before she was born. They didn't attempt to revive her. Mm -hmm. I think they were worried perhaps she would have some brain damage because she was without oxygen for so long. And they didn't ask me what I wanted. Yeah. And so I began a downward spiral. I mean, you know, my body, I gave birth. So I had these maternal hormones pumping through my bloodstream saying, take care of your baby, take care of your baby. Where's your baby? Where's your baby? I had phantom, I heard phantom cries. Um, I had breast milk for almost a year after she died. I couldn't, my breast milk wouldn't dry. And I, 
used to walk the halls at night. I used to walk the hallways at night and I, I felt like a wild animal. It was a very visceral primal experience. I felt like a wild animal whose baby had been stolen and I was searching for her. You know, when I think about it now, it just brings tears to my heart, you know, because my old self was in such pain and I, I couldn't, I just needed to be near her, you know, and I couldn't find her no matter how much I looked. She was nowhere to be found. Um, and it was such excruciating pain mm -hmm. that I thought, I don't think I'm going to live through this. <laughs> um, I think I'm physically going to die from the pain. And, and in a way, you know, I guess I suffered an existential death. I think I did die. The old me died. You know, mm -hmm. many contemplatives talk about that. Yeah. Before you can become the new you, you have to, the old you has to die, you know, yeah. and you have to die to yourself kind of thing. And I, and I did, I died. I, my old self died that day. And so it's, it was um, by far the defining experience of my life. It was not like anything I had ever been through. It was not like anything I could have ever imagined I would go through. Mm -hmm. And I had three other kids to take care of who I, whom I loved so much. Yeah. But I could barely brush my teeth. I could barely get out of bed. And the the worst part about it is there was virtually no support. You know, no one around me understood this trauma and this grief. No one around me understood this dark night of the soul I was going through. And so the existential loneliness was was almost as bad as the grief itself and missing her. Um, because you exist in a world where you are like, am I crazy? Am I crazy? Do people feel this way and survive? And I couldn't find anyone. I finally found a little support group called Compassionate Friends. And that helped immensely to connect with them because they were all parents whose children had died yeah. at various ages and from various causes. But it at least helped me to understand that what I was going through wasn't crazy. It was normal, you know. I mean, I had lost grandparents, but you you expect to lose grandparents. It's different. Yeah. As much as you might love a grandparent, it's not the same as losing your baby or your young child or your teenager or your adult child even, yeah. right? It's you don't. It's out of order. It's an anachronism, right? It is. That was a quite a, a traumatic experience for anyone to go through. Yeah. How, how did you bounce back? Very, 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 very slowly. And it was a lot of work. I mean, you you really have to be willing to do the work of, I call it fully inhabited grief. So I would schedule time um, because I wanted my children to see me grieving, but I also didn't want to scare them. Yeah. And there were, because they were very young. And there were times when um, the grief sounded very terrifying. I could hear myself wailing outside myself and i was like that doesn't even sound human it's, it sounds like a supernatural sound and i didn't want to do that in front of my children so i would schedule that so when i would take them to school or to daycare i would schedule two or three hours to just let myself wail and and i made space for grief in my life the same way i would have spent time mothering her had she lived yeah i made that my time with her. And I still do that today. She's been dead for 28 years and two months. And I still do that today where I have time for myself to be with her and my grief. So it's, for me, it's so, it was so important to 
always keep her near to my heart. And that meant that grief always had to be near to my heart. And joy is there too. And feelings of connection and feelings of warmth and tenderness, those are there too. It's not that it's not just grief. There's there's room in my heart for other feelings now too. But but I don't want to decry grief because it's because it's painful. I want to stay connected to that part of my life. It's that part of my life is also what brings me to the world with a with a kind of fierce compassion that that I think is unstoppable. Yeah. You know, I've always said I think that grieving people, people who have suffered tremendous loss are the potential peacemakers in the world. Because once you've suffered something like this, you can't see the world the same again if you fully inhabit your grief. So it looks like uh, you had this high level of intentionality. Was mm. this modeled for you or how did you realize that this is the best way to actually recover uh. is to fully embrace it and make time for it? The time you'd spend for mothering, you said, I'll spend this time to grieve. Well, there was intentionality at some point. In the beginning, I had no idea what I was doing. You know, in the beginning, I was I was flailing. I was clinging on to anyone who who was just kind and would just say something kind to me because I kept being met with these useless platitudes and cliches that felt like people were psychologically assaulting me. You know, they were, well, at least it was the baby and not the oldest boy. And I would, you know, and I would be like, what? are you talking about what what listen to yourself who says that or you know god had a plan for you or you know god needed an angel to tend his garden or you know or whatever other things people were saying and i was so desperate for someone to just say oh honey you know i was 27 at the time mm. you know 28 at the time i was so desperate for someone to just say oh honey how awful for you to lose your precious baby tell me about her you know mm. i just was so desperate and and so i was flail and it's let me tell you those kinds of people are rare um i found True. much more support yeah. Yeah, I wrote wrote about this in one of my one of my blogs. I found so much more support in my animals. Um, you know, my animals would just come sit. They come up beside me when I was sobbing, and they would just put their head on my lap and just stay and not, you know, and and not, you know, give me a useless platitude or some ridiculous, trite, meaningless quip. So I, it took me quite a long time to find that intentionality but i think it came out of pure desperation i think i think it became clear to me at some point in my early early ish grief somewhere around a year after her death where i was sort of talking to myself in my mind saying if you're going to survive this you're going to have to do it differently from what everyone else is telling you you need to do mm because you're not going to make it through this. You know, I weighed 88 pounds within three or four months. Oh my! I literally felt like I couldn't eat. I had a, it felt like a grapefruit in my throat all the time. So I, it was hard to swallow food. Yeah. And um, I just knew that I wasn't, I wasn't going to make it if I didn't do something else. And so I, I started to really listen to the wisdom of my own heart and, you know, and who knows, maybe her heart, you know, or the heart of God or some other or some greater wisdom, a wisdom greater than my material, current material self, for sure. Yeah. And um, and and then I just sort of found my path. And once I started to 
to realize I could fully inhabit my grief. I didn't have to run from it. I didn't have to be afraid of it. The worst thing already happened. She died. There was no future worst thing that could happen except to lose another child, of course, right? Which I was terrified of, but there was no other thing that would be worse than that. And so I... So I just let myself feel, and I let myself at first feel deeply and fully inhabit my grief in small increments. So it happened sort of incrementally where, you know, where like I would spend the time with my grief, I would wail and wail and wail and wail and wail. And then I would feel just overwhelmed or exhausted. Sometimes I would just cry myself to sleep and I would, you know, just be so exhausted. Um, and and then sometimes, like I said, I scheduled time with it. And then I kept doing that. I kept turning toward it again and again and again. It's very easy to get seduced by life back into the mundanity of paying the bills and making dinner, which are all essential. Yeah. But we have to make space for grief too. And, you know, you spoke about something really powerful of the emotional presence that your friends were unable to offer, but the animals in your life were yes. able to offer that emotional presence. Uh, that's really powerful. And yeah. uh, I think people feel like um, just being silent, they feel like they're not doing enough. They feel like they have to say something or yes. to do something to take you out of your grief. But that right. makes it almost worse. Yes, yes, it does. Because it it for most people, it feels like an aversion of their their honest grief, their reality. And so it feels a little like turning away. You know, it feels a little like people are turning away from them. And and then they feel some people, especially people who are prone to people pleasing, yeah. right, yeah. feel like they have to put on a happy face and put on a mask and pretend to be okay. And and that's a, a very heavy burden for someone who's grieving, right, to put on a mask and go out in the world and, well, how are you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm fine. You know, that's... That's not the reality for most people who are grieving a catastrophic loss, right? Yeah, no. So so that, that's the great thing about animals. They don't expect that. Animals just come to you with no agenda. And if you're crying, they'll sit with you. If you're laughing, they'll sit with you. If you're, if you're angry, they'll sit with you. They might be afraid if you're expressing it, right? If you're flailing your arms and yelling, they might hide. But when your anger bursts, has passed, they'll they'll forgive you and come sit next to you, right? Yeah. Unlike unlike a lot of humans, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the reason why you started your care farm? Because you have this incredible care farm. Yes, I do have an incredible care farm. It's not the actual direct reason. I'll I'll tell you how that came about. Well, I've always loved animals and I've always rescued animals, but I've I've rescued dogs, basically. I was a dog rescuer and I haven't eaten animals since I was seven years old. I, I I had a sensitivity to animals from the time I was a little girl. I didn't want to eat. I didn't want to eat them. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a fierce vegan. And I've been this way for for many years. So this idea of animals as a source of solace and comfort was came natural to me, but I never thought of it in the broader context of grief until six years ago. Was it six? No, sorry. Seven years ago, I rescued a horse who was um, being beaten on, he was being worked. He was a pack animal and he had fallen. His head was bleeding and his knees were bleeding. And I was on a hike and I, I came around a corner and saw a man kicking and punching him in the face, trying mm. to get him up 
despite the horse was bleeding, clearly exhausted. The horse was breathing quite heavily. And I, you know, I'm an animal lover. I've never owned a horse. I've never, you know, I, 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 I don't know anything about horses. So, but I can see an animal in distress. And I started yelling at the man, stop it, stop it. What are you doing? Very long story short, it took me three days, but I rescued that horse and brought him home. And he was um, at least six or 700 pounds underweight. He was very close to death. Mm. He was, um, his back, the bone of his spine was actually coming through his skin all across his back. He ended up having to have back surgery because he had an infection in his bone. He was, it, it, the fact that he lived at all is, is kind of a miracle. So I brought him to my house, which happened to be horse property. I mean, I, it wasn't set up for horses, but it happened to be horse <laughs> property. So I, I created a little stall for him, put him in my backyard and, uh, and didn't have any idea what I was going to do with him. I mean, I, I knew I needed to save his life and help him recover from these injuries, but I had no idea what was going to happen if he lived. And many vets told me they didn't think he was going to live anyway. So about two weeks after the rescue, I, I work with a lot of indigenous native families and they like, they like, they appreciate my style, first of all, because I'm not, um, what what one of my indigenous patients said, I'm not white man's medicine. <laughs> That's deep. Yes. Yes. It's deep. Um, I, I approach, uh, I'm much more egalitarian in my approach and I don't rely on the medical model in my approach at all. So a lot of my native clients really appreciate that, that about me. Cause frankly, they've had quite enough of of they've had quite enough literal colonization. They didn't want emotional colonization too. True. Yeah. And so I um, had this native client. She and I worked together for a couple of hours during a session. It was her son who died. And afterwards she knew about the rescue because it was pretty public. I blogged about it. And so she knew about the rescue and she said, you know, Dr. C, I know you have a horse here. Can I come and spend some time with your horse? And I said, yeah, of course. Yeah, come on, let's go. And so I walked her out. I said, do you want to be inside the pen with him or out? And she said, inside. So I brought a little stool in there and she sat in there with him. I said, would you like me to stay or would you like me to go? She said, no, you can go. And I said, okay. And so I left. And so here's this battered, nearly dead horse. Mm. And this emotionally battered, brokenhearted, bereaved mother. And all of a sudden I hear wailing, just wailing, just sobbing, which was unusual for her, even mm. with me. Mm. And I look out the window to the, to the stall area and Chamaco, my horse, is standing with his head in her lap, mm. with his head down, bowing at her, her, at her knees. And she, she has her hands on his face and just sobbing. And that was the moment I said, I know exactly what he and I are going to do together. Ah, oh, that's, that's powerful right there. Yeah. And that's how the care farm came to be. And now we have 50, 50 rescue animals. They're all rescues. We don't reproduce. We only rescue. There are enough animals who are battered and bruised and broken at the hands of our species. 
Uh, we don't need to make more. We just need to save more. <laughs> and so we have 50 of them now. That's about the most that our land can hold. So um, um, we have sheep and goats and horses and donkeys and alpacas and cows and pigs and dogs and cats. And um, <laughs> it's a cacophony of sounds around here in the morning. Um, you know, but they're, but 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 in my research, I'm I'm a professor. I'm a full professor at Arizona State University, and so I'm a researcher. That's my paying job. Mm. And in my research, one of the things that I found is that the fact that these animals were rescued, these animals have known grief because they've been separated from their families. They've known fear because they've been beaten and abused and tortured in some cases. They've known loneliness because they've been left alone, sometimes to die. They've known terror and fear because they've smelled death around them and the horrors of what sadly humans do to them. That fact is critically important to the success of this farm. Even people who haven't, who weren't formerly sensitive to animal suffering come to the farm and say, yes, it's really important to me that these animals were rescued because they brought something different to my experience here. It really is truly profound. With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Sole Berman. We continue our conversation. Uh, before the break, you spoke about the power of these animals, you know, healing from their woundedness. They are almost like wounded healers. Yes. They've gone through a lot of tragedy. You bring them in and then they come with this depth, uh, their interpretation of life and even their purpose on earth becomes much deeper and it helps yeah. humans who are craving. Could you talk yeah. more about that? Yeah. And it's a symbiotic relationship, you know, because the animals who are here are here at various stages in, in their learning to trust in the world again. And so the people who come here are also not trusting in a world. It's hard to trust in a world where your six-year-old can die of cancer, you know, where your where your father can die by suicide, you know, where your partner can die in a car accident, right? It's it's hard to trust in that world. And so they the humans come here and they meet with this animal and they connect with this animal. And it's like they help the animal. They're also helping the animal trust in the world again because they are approaching this animal with a tender heartedness that maybe they wouldn't have had before. Mm. But when you're in pain, you're more sensitive to people who are in pain. There are studies that show that. Yes. Right. And so they approach these animals with a tenderness they that that may not have been familiar to them before. And these animals start to learn to trust. So the humans are helping the animals and the animals are helping the humans. It's a symbiosis. And to me, I don't know that I did. There's just so much in that. You know, there's just so much. It's incredible. So the, the, the people who are grieving come to you, come to the farm and then through your assessment with them you curate to see which animal best suits their need or how does it work no i let them choose 
Okay. <laughs> they get to pick. And so they get to pick which animal they want to interact with. And if that animal doesn't want to interact with them, we don't force the animal. That's very important. They can go out there. For example, I have a bereaved mom who's absolutely lovely. Her only son, he was three years old. He died. And um, she came, she was coming every month from California to the farm. She was, she was hurt hurting a lot and uh, was having trouble finding good clinical support where she was. So she was here at the farm every month. And there was a particular horse that who we had just rescued recently, a few months before her first visit, who wasn't particularly open to human contact yet. Hmm. Right. And so what she did every day, she would go into the pasture and just sit the first day, 20 feet away. The second day, 19 feet away, the third day, 18. And she just, she would wait and wait and wait. And on that horse's time, she eventually not only could touch her, but massage her. She, she, her legs are very, were very, very sore from overuse. And um, she had a lot of chronic pain. And before you knew it, like I, I walked out there, she was here for, I think that time she was here for about two months Mm. and and I walked out there and I saw her rubbing her legs. And I said, oh, my goodness, that's incredible. <laughs> she gentled her because she was patient and because she waited and didn't push her. So sometimes the people might choose the animal and the animal doesn't want it. It's OK to be patient with the animal and work with them. And so they can they can do that. We just never we never halter a horse and force a horse to interact with a person. Yeah. Right. Um, so so the they pick their animal on their own, but they but if the animal doesn't want to interact with them, then the instruction is you we, we don't force the animal to do that. Yeah. yeah. And and people understand that. And. Uh, we have a pig on the farm. We call her a hippopotamus because she's very large. Mm. Uh, she's a Duroc pig. So she's a, basically a bacon pig. She was bred to, to be bacon. Well, when we rescued her, we didn't know how big she was going to get. We rescued her. She was little tiny thing. You could hold her. She was a little tiny ball. And um, and now she's five, probably close to 500 pounds. She's huge, right? Oh, yes. She doesn't quite trust people. She doesn't quite trust humans yet. But people are slowly enough people. She's been here two years. It's taken that long. You have to be patient, just like you do with people, right? We have to give people and animals the space they need before any rehabilitation can occur. And so it's taken her two years. And finally, now she's starting to eat out of people's hands and let people touch her, even if it's just for a second. She'll let them just touch her for a second. But it's, it you know, it might be another year before she lets me kiss her, but um, <laughs> eventually I'm going to kiss her. <laughs> <laughs> so there's yeah. uh, quite a beautiful process to this therapeutic yes. interaction between the person yes. and the animal. Yeah, quite a beautiful unrushed process, right? Yeah. Yes. Right. And that's what we need when we're in grieving. We need people not to push us. We need people not to 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 press us to to go back to life as it once was, because life it, when especially when loss is catastrophic, life isn't what it once was and it never can be again. Yeah. Now it's a matter of rebuilding a different life. And that can take time. I, earlier, yeah. you spoke about um, what you work. Most of your clients are the native and you spoke about not uh, not being the white man's medicine. So in a sense, you develop. Uh, so what therapeutic models 
do use that is totally different from the general Western therapeutic yeah. models. The general Western, yeah, the general Western <laughs> medical model. Yeah, well, we use, um, first of all, we use the ATTEND model, which is uh, something that I've written about and we've studied, and it stands for attunement, trust, touch, egalitarianism, where we balance power, nuance, and death and grief education, right? And the most important person in that model is the actual counselor or therapist. The counselor or therapist has to come to this having done and continuing to do his or her own work. Yeah. Um, have a, we we require all of our people, all of our um, clinicians who work here, they have to have their own practice, contemplative practice, um, and they have to have compassion at the center of their lives. Uh, attunement is about contemplative practice, really, because when we're attuned, we're attuned to everything that's happening within us and beyond us, beyond the parameters of us into the, what um, I think it was Bettelheim who calls it the I-thou relationship. Was it Bruno Bettelheim? I can't remember. I think it was. Um, but the I-thou relationship. Mm. Um, and so the the space between self and other, basically. Yeah. And so that's attunement. And when our clinicians practice contemplative practice, when they when they practice contemplative prayer or when they meditate, they're more attuned. They're more aware of what's happening beyond them and within them. Yes. And so that's attunement. I mean, in a nutshell, I have papers on it. You can read on the internet. I've, there's and chapters and books that I've written about it. But it's called the attend, the attend mindfulness based grief model. Yeah. Uh, trust, and that is um, allowing trust to unfold slowly in their time by being a trustworthy clinician. And being trustworthy means not colonizing their emotions, not minimizing their experience, not interrupting them, you know, having really good communication, being a deep listener, bringing tons of empathy and compassion to the relationship. We don't trust people who are not compassionate and empathic. Yeah. Right? We don't trust them because we have a sense that they're dangerous, right? True. Um, Touch is incredibly important and it's well-placed touch. And I teach an entire class here at the care farm about touch and how important touch is when it's prudent and not perfunctory. Right. But we in therapy, in the therapy world, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a professor at ASU and I have, I teach gra in the graduate school and I have students who come to me and they're like, well, we learned at our 500 level class that you're never, ever supposed to touch a client. And I said, well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't agree with that. And my clients spontaneously hug me all the time. When you are deeply, deeply caring and loving and compassionate towards someone, they want to, they often want to embrace you. Not always. And I rarely initiate a hug, but people spontaneously hug me, period. I'm not going to push them away or avert that hug. I'm going to hug them back. It's ridiculous. We're, <laughs> it's just, it's so upset. We've gone so far the other way. Yes. So I jokingly, I say to my students, you know, don't grab anyone inappropriately, right? I mean, of course. Yeah. But touch can be incredibly important. Like I'm talking to a bereaved father in a session and he normally doesn't cry and he starts to cry and his body starts to shake because he's trying to hold it back. 
me leaning into him and just gently touching him on the outside of the knee might be just what he needs in that moment to allow his body to to weep and not hold it in, right? Mm. And I've seen it over and over and over again. Yeah. So prudent touch. Um, egalitarianism, which is where we balance power. We don't come in. I don't come in as the the be-all, end-all expert. People ask me, <clears throat> you know, my opinion, and I say, well, let's explore what that means to you, right? Because I'm not the expert in their grief. They're the expert in their grief. I'm just helping them find it. Um, the other thing about egalitarianism is it is it is it helps to balance that in that inevitable power between the clinician and the client, right? Because mm. the clinician is sort of, you know, at, is at this level, this higher up level, and the client is down here. And and I just don't believe in that in 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 therapeutic relationships. I think we're we come in as equal partners and we're doing the work together. Yes. And uh then and then nuance is really about paying attention to cultural nuance, religion, socioeconomic status, region of the world, um, spiritual practices, but also experiential nuance. So what is it about, you know, sudden infant death syndrome takes the lives of about 2,500 to 3,000 babies in the United States every year. And I meet a lot of those families whose babies die of SIDS and they the circumstances look the same, but every family is different. I can't treat every family whose child dies by suicide or SIDS or or during birth. I can't treat them all the same. They're different. They bring different experiences. Someone had a good experience with the hospital who was very compassionate and someone else, the hospital left them alone and treated them awful and re-traumatized them. Mm. They're different people. And so the nuance pays attention to that. And finally, death and grief education, and that's continuously learning, studying, reading. You can see, because we're on video right now, yes. I have 360-degree library with books. There are books all the way around me. I'm constantly <laughs> reading. I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly growing. And I happen to be a researcher, which is perfect for me because I'm always learning new things. And um, you know, and so should our clinicians. Our clinicians should constantly strive to learn more. Um, to educate themselves because psychoeducation is such an important piece of this. I would say at least half of my work is psychoeducation with my with my patients. Mm. So it's it, you know that the model is a really useful model that that's built on one of the most important things that's built on provider self-compassion, self-care. If we don't take care of ourselves emotionally, physically, if we're not taking care of our mind, our heart, our body, and our existential or spiritual self, then we don't bring our best self to the relationship with our patient. And we owe it to them and we owe it to ourselves to do that. Well said. Well, that would take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at NAMI.org. I'm Soleil Berman. We continue our conversation. Um... Before the break, you are talking about your expectations from the clinicians. 
yeah. and and for them to be fully aware of themselves to be uh, to be able to take care of themselves so they can take care of other people and there's yeah. also a strong uh, sense of attunement uh, yeah. that this depth of uh, experience but also spirituality that, that the clinician has to possess yeah. I'm really I like that because in the current situation, you know, so many people who go through grief and they go to grief therapies, there's a lot of shallowness and it's yes. not as deep as you've, you've explained it. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that happens in the pedagogical models at university level is that you learn how to see people as a diagnosis rather than a human being with existential dilemmas and traumas and catastrophes. And you start to see that you're above that. That doesn't affect you, which is a lie. Actually, mm -hmm. it's a lie. Someday that, you know, 28 year old clinician who got out of school and got her graduate degree and is now going to tell the client that they have major depressive disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder. Someday when the catastrophe happens in her family, it's going to be her. You know, no one is immune to these existential uh, pains and sufferings. The The problem is we come in with this hubris, you know, with this sort of arrogance, like, oh, well, I'm educated. And, um, and this pretense with these letters after our names. And, you know, in Zen, we have, uh, um, we press our hands together and we bow to the other person. It's called gasho. Gasho is the bow. And it's a bow of humility. It's a bow of, um, you know, I, I come to you with humility. Tell me about yourself. And that's that's how I sign all my emails is Gasho, right? Because I, I don't want to, when I'm working with a patient, I never want to make assumptions about that person. I never want to come in as the person who's going to tell them what's, quote, what's wrong with them or what they need to do differently. They'll find it on their own if they have the right support. What's right for person A may not be right for person B. We're all different beings, right? And we come to this experience with different histories and different intergenerational trauma and different, you know, we're all so different. We have to come with a humility as a clinician. We have to come in gasha. We have to come in, the, in bowing to the other person saying, tell me about you. Mm. Tell me about who you are. I'm not going to tell you about you. You tell me about you. I wanted to talk a little bit about your first book. Okay. Yeah, in your first book, really, uh, you speak a lot about cultural sensitivity, bearing the unbearable. There are quite incredible titles there. Uh, for I want the listeners to to get a copy of it. But talk to us about the major thesis in that book. Yeah, the major thesis is. Um, the story of how I help people be with grief and fully inhabit grief, yeah. continue to turn toward grief slowly throughout the course of their lives, and then hopefully when they feel ready to do with grief, to take action with grief, to allow grief to become fierce compassion in the world. That's a kind of fearlessness. Um You've already been through the worst thing. What worst thing could possibly happen? So bring unstoppable compassion to the world. And in so doing, you know, you're bringing your person, your child, your partner, your parent, your sibling, you're bringing that person with you because you're carrying them forward in your heart. And what better way for them to show up if they can't show up physically because they've died? 
then mm. what better way for them to show up than through your actions in the world, through mm. your fierce compassion in the world? Um, would I rather have my child back? Uh, that it, it, 100,000%. I mean, I don't, but I don't, I'm not given a choice. I don't get that choice. So what am I going to do now? It's a little like Victor Frankl talked about, you know, we, we can't change the circumstances. And so what we can do when we feel ready, and this is key because we can't hurry through it. I think hurrying through it presents its own risk and, and, and problems. Okay. So when we feel ready, while we're fully inhabiting grief, we can bring that forward into the world as a force for good not in not in spite of the grief, but because of the grief. Yeah. Right. And that's what I always say. You know, whatever whatever I do now in the world is not in spite of my daughter's death. It's because of my daughter's death. Hmm. So your daughter's death, in a sense, um, created a new passion. Yeah. Course. An incredible yeah. passion, almost a calling into this healing ministry. If I didn't do something with the grief, I would either have died physically or I would have been a shell of a human being. I would have been like many of the walking dead you see today. Mm. You, know, you see people who don't, they never see suffering. They walk, they can walk right past suffering. You know, take my horse. My horse had been passed by thousands and thousands and thousands of tourists mm. who who didn't look at him, who averted their gaze, who just wanted to go have fun on their vacation. Mm. What did they miss? What opportunity of profound beauty and meaning did they miss chasing fun? because they averted their gaze, right? There are so many people who are sleepwalking through life. I wasn't going to be a smaller version of myself because my daughter died. Mm. I wasn't. Mm. My, that's, that can preach. That's, that's, uh, (laughs) 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 no one's ever said that to me before. (laughs) I wasn't going to be a smaller version of myself because my daughter died. Powerful words there. Mm. And now you were able to lean into your grief of become better enough to help other people who are walking through grief. Yeah. And what a better way to do it. Grief is hard, but if mm-hmm. you're willing to walk through it, um, there's a way that you can use that pain to help other people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And animals and the planet. <laughs> we have to. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? Um, well, there, you know, if you've lost a few resources, if you've lost a child, um, the Miss Foundation is the nonprofit I started that that helps families who whose children are dying or have died. It's Miss M I S S Foundation dot org. Um, the the books bearing the unbearable grieving is loving. Um, people people seem to really like the books. Um, it's a the um, bearing the unbearable is still a bestseller and. It's, it's, 
I think it's, I think it's, uh, it's encouraging because it shows me that people are willing to turn toward grief and fully inhabit their grief, uh, at least take the first step toward that. Um, I have a website, which is centerforlossandtrauma.com, all spelled out, centerforlossandtrauma.com. Um, Sela Care Farm has a website, S-E-L-A-H, sellacarefarm.com. Um, Wisdom Publication, my publisher has um, a, a, a wonderful course. It's very reasonably priced. I think it's only like $10 or $15 a lesson, and their lessons are like an hour long. And so it's Wisdom Publications Bearing the Unbearable Course. It's a lovely course. It's good. And I, and I think it's a good course for grieving people, but also a really good course for clinicians, chaplains, people who work with grieving people, yes. because it prompts us to do some of our own work. Um, and it, and it, and there's so much education in there about grief and trauma. So, uh, it's just wisdom publications, bearing the unbearable. It's an online course. You can do it as many times as you want to. It's, it was the reason I created that, you know, wisdom came to me after bearing the unbearable was published. And there were so many people who, who wanted to work with me and I'm one person. I only have 24 hours in a day. I can't work with every single person. So they said, well, why don't we create a course that people can sign up for? And then they're working with you indirectly. So, which is perfect. And not, not everyone can travel to, to Sedona, Arizona to come to the care farm either. Yeah. So, um, so th there's some resources for people get support somewhere. So if you are suffering a catastrophic loss, the most important thing is find support somewhere. If you can't find it in a human rescue an animal. Because I tell you what, that animal will love you unconditionally and that animal's very worthy life is worth a rescue. So find support from somewhere, your church, your faith community, um, your family, friends, relatives, neighbors, support groups. The Miss Foundation, by the way, we have an online support group too. So people can, can join our online support group. I don't facilitate that one, but uh, someone I train facilitates it. Mm. So find support somewhere. Please don't try to do this alone. It's, it's so, it's already so lonely. Don't do this alone yeah. and don't, and don't, don't allow other people to be alone through these experiences. What are your final thoughts? Oh gosh, final thoughts. I think one of the things that I'd like to say in closing is that compassion can change the world. So it's compassion for self compassion for others who are like us, compassion for other people who are not like us, compassion for other species, and for this beautiful blue dot which we share. I think that compassion can change everything. It can't prevent the lo our loved ones from dying, but it can, it can help us through it. I think we just need a more compassionate world. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you, everyone. That was Dr. Joanne Cacciatore. Thank you for listening. This show was brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to the show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.